Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is the end of a beautiful friendship. It ended a moment ago. This is the end of a beautiful friendship. I know because your eyes told So this morning, the reason you're hearing Shirley Horn in the background here, so this morning I'm getting ready to do this show. And what this show is about, um, particularly in the second and third segments of this show, I'm just going to take your calls. Because obviously the nation has gone through uh, a pretty big upheaval with the sexual misconduct allegations. And public radio is maybe no different from lots of other places, but it almost seems very concentrated on public radio. And we'll talk about whether that's really accurate in the first segment. But anyway, so Jonathan Schwartz, who plays this heavily curated show of music like this, is one of the people who's currently suspended from WNYC. And so I pulled up. There's actually his music is still playing on the station's website. Um, it's called the Jonathan Channel. I pulled up the Jonathan Channel. I was curious to know whether his voice appeared at all anywhere, and it didn't. But all these songs kept playing. This song was playing at one point, and I started laughing. And, and then, I mean, because obviously, you know, it kind of fits. And then all these other songs that kind of fit, whether it's Get Out of Town or Something's Gotta Give or Look for the Silver Lining, all these other songs, you know, were playing in the playlist. And every other one of them seemed kind of apt or or fraught or something. And maybe that's because of songs of that era are just about something, something recognizable. So one, one thing we're going to do today is out of every segment, we are going to play one of the songs that I heard this morning. Uh, we're going to play one of the songs, I think, that I just mentioned even. So just to quickly recap before I bring David Fulkenflick into this, um, a whole bunch of people who are well-known, if you're a certain kind of do- a public radio listener, are either gone or on leave. Leonard Lopate, who's been on WNYC for 30 years, he is on. He is suspended. Uh, Jonathan Schwartz, as I just said, uh, is suspended. John Hockenberry, also uh, at WNYC, or he was at WNYC with a takeaway. He left in August, and kind of subsequently we found out that um, the reasons that he left uh, had something to do anyway with sexual harassment, also maybe a, some allegations of bullying, and even some very odd attitudes towards some of his co-hosts of color. Um, Garrison Keillor is gone um, from the airwaves of Minnesota Public Radio. Of course, he hasn't done Prairie Home Companion for quite a while now, but he was doing the Writer's Almanac. That's gone uh, because he actually owns the Writer's Almanac, the way I understand it. Uh, And um, he also would own, you know, I guess some of the archived uh, uh, Prairie Home Companion stuff. Anyway, they changed the name this weekend to Live From Here, which is a terrible name, but that's another story. Tom Ashbrook is on leave uh, at WBUR. They've uh, had quite a bit of internal reporting about that, about what he's on leave for, some kind of combination of toxic work environment with some bullying and tirades and, and, and also maybe uh, some back and neck rubs. And then Tavis Smiley is the latest one. He's more probably a TV guy, but he does have a radio show. It was distributed by PRI, Public Radio International. It will not be at the end of this year. They're ending their contract. 
Uh, and behind the scenes, there's Michael Oreskes and David Sweeney, both major NPR news executives um, you know, or high-ranking editors or whatever you want to call them. So that's a lot. <laughs> it just is a lot. Um, so um, David Folkenflik is joining us, uh, NPR's media correspondent. He is one of the people who has been trying to um, find his way through the thicket uh, of all this stuff. First of all, David, did I screw up any of those? I was trying to make sure I got the status of each one of these things as accurately as I could. I apologize. I thought you were reading names in the phone book in alphabetical <laughs> order. It's a long list. Yeah, it's a long list. Uh, you know, it's not good. Yeah. Uh, I think you basically got that right. Uh, these are uh, figures. Uh, you know, it's worth remembering. There are hundreds of public radio stations uh, and broadcasters across the country, some of them national, some of them syndicated, some of them local. Uh, and uh, these are figures who in some ways help to define some of those stations and entities. Uh, this is... Uh, you know, your exhaust was, uh, excuse me, your list was exhaustive, but not perhaps, uh, you know, completely encyclopedic. I'm sure there are others that would pop in there if you were to take a look. But uh, uh, it's an issue. It's it's an issue that I think uh, folks are grappling with uh, throughout the media and public media uh, may provide a counterbalance in some ways to commercial media, but not in this one. Right. So um, I want to come back to that idea because it's a fascinating idea. But you've covered this a lot uh, all through the industry. And obviously, although that was a pretty impressive or depressing uh, list of names, uh, you know, you look at Fox News and the founder, Roger Ailes and and Bill O'Reilly. I mean, two of the really most significant names uh, preceded this by quite a bit. Uh, Matt Lauer at NBC, Charlie Rose, who's on CBS and PBS. I mean, it's so, I don't know. I don't know how fair it is to make a big deal out of public radio. You know, look, I, I've covered uh, this issue uh, significantly since the first week of July uh, 2016, uh, you know, right in the middle of the, uh, uh, or at the outset of the Republican National uh, Convention uh, when Gretchen Carlson stepped forward and filed her lawsuit against Roger Ailes, the, the founding force that propelled the uh, what is Fox News. And he essentially created a network uh, that had embedded in the DNA an ability uh, that really can't be underscored enough uh, to funnel women toward him that he could uh, make advances on, that he could harass, that he could in, in at least one case extort uh, sexual favors from. Uh, he had videotaped uh, a woman uh, uh, performing various uh, sort of a sexual dance for him. Uh, and he, he showed it to her and said, you know, I now have you. I, you know, and you'll do what I want. And she did. And it, it, they ultimately paid her $3 million in a secret settlement in 2011. You know, Fox News has paid, I believe if you include what Bill O'Reilly personally paid for it, over $180 million uh, to settle various uh, sexual harassment suits. And that doesn't include what has to be tens of millions of dollars in legal fees. You know, so you've got a, 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 a financial count of t- over $200 million, uh, including one instance in which Bill O'Reilly revealed earlier this year, uh, earlier this fall by the New York Times, uh, committed to paying $32 million for something that was titled uh, in a memo, uh, non-consensual sexual uh, uh, interaction, uh, which sounds to a lot of people a lot of, like sexual assault or rape. Uh, and it's not clear what that means. He he denies that he did anything wrong, but $32 million bucks. So I want to preface this conversation, which I'm happy to go deep on in public media and say, you know, that was a culture built to essentially uh, uh, extract uh, uh, sexual favors uh, uh, for its chairman and then for the men who watched the culture around him, people like Bill O'Reilly. Uh, and it's uh, – uh, 
you know, it's quite something to see. But, you know, look, I think public media, one of the things that it does, one of the things we've tried very hard at NPR is to be transparent, to hold institutions accountable, even in holding places like Fox and NBC for Matt Lauer and and people like uh, Bloomberg and, and the Charlie Rose production shop and, and CBS responsible for Charlie Rose. We've got to hold our shop accountable, too. And we've tried very hard to do aggressive reporting to do that. Right. And I think there are differences. Just to go back to your um, original comment about the, uh, whether public radio can be a counterbalance, there are differences culturally in the on-air presentation. So I worked in commercial radio for 16 years, and we were basically encouraged to a certain degree to be jerks on the air anyway and in various ways. And I worked for a CBS-owned radio station, and so this is the world that has included at various times Howard Stern and Don Imus and the Grease Man and all, all this kind of stuff. And, and so, you know, if something came out about what was going on behind the scenes would be a little bit less surprising. I think the, the, the presentation, the public presentation of public radio is obviously better than that and less flashily commercial and less attention-seeking in that particular way. And I guess I'm asking, I assume that puts another kind of pressure on public radio to deal with these things quickly and effectively because that kind of jerkiness, although it was very much what we were selling at certain CBS stations, is not what uh, public radio is in the business of doing. Yeah, I mean, I think if there's a disparity between public perception and private conduct, I think that the degree to which there's a, a chasm there uh, highlights uh, people's anxieties about it. You can be angry about somebody who performs uh, uh, like a buffoon and a sexist on the air, but perhaps you think that's what you expected all along. If it's happening from somebody who looks like a, a fair-minded arbiter, somebody you turn to as a listener, as an honest broker, somebody who has probably been involved in talking about these issues for the past 18 months, if not for the past couple of decades, then that's going to be even more profoundly unsettling. And I don't blame listeners and viewers for having an issue with that, for saying, you know, how do I wrap my mind around this? How do I restore faith? Right. And so I, I think, you know, listeners are having several different sets of problems and different listeners are in different circles on the Venn diagram. But one of the sets of problems, and I think it specifically um, is happening uh, in a very public way at WNYC in terms of their interactions with some of their listeners, and it's probably going to happen at BUR too, is when the reporting, even the reporting coming from within, because each of these stations has done extensive reporting. And the NYC's reporting about John Hockenberry was voluminous and copious and seemed pretty comprehensive. But the, the situation it sketched out uh, in its own reporting was one of an ongoing, long-running set of problems that involved everything from very inappropriate overtures that Hockenberry was making to female employees to his treatment of co-hosts who were of color to just that kind of horrible workplace environment of belittling uh, people and, and, and governing by tirade and yelling and screaming. And, and I think for the NYC audiences, they've been publicly responding, even at a kind of public hearing thing, uh, is like, what kind of place is this? <laughs> this didn't start last week by your own reporting. It's been going on for a long time. Why weren't you do something, doing something about it? Uh, and, and I think that that's part of the problem. That's one of the reactions, David, that people are having, right? That this wasn't something you just found out about yesterday. Look, uh, leadership in public media uh, is mortal. And it's human, and people, you know, at times show their themselves and their character at at, at vital moments, and see people sometimes show their vulnerabilities and mistakes at vital moments. Uh, it seems pretty evident from the reporting of WNYC that uh, the head of NYC and their programming chief were aware of things 
uh, for some time. And they thought they had really bet significantly on John Hockenberry as a consequential figure. He had been an NPR host decades ago. He left in the early 90s. Uh, and he had gone on to network uh, fame and prominence and, and accolades, you know, really doing substantive reporting and work. He's a very good and accomplished host. He also drove out uh, three female hosts, and I don't think it's incidental, three uh, uh, women hosts of color who, uh, uh, along with colleagues at times, reported racially, you can say racially insensitive, you could say comments that that, uh, that they took to be essentially racist. Uh, uh, and he, these were things for which he apologized often, uh, you know, very shortly after. But they nonetheless affected the workplace they experienced, and he, you know, ensured that they were not set up to succeed. That's a real problem. And these things were, according to the, the, the hosts involved, reported uh, to uh, to management. That's a fair question. I do think NYC has done something very interesting. You're taking calls later on to talk about this. I think that's smart and important. As part of the coverage of NYC, they've taken a lot of calls and had a lot of the public weigh in. And sometimes when you're doing that in the moment that you're learning information and letting people uh, uh, express their anxieties, their concerns, their fears, there's a way in which I admire it. And there's a way in which I say this is not, you know, in our reporting, we've tried to do things tightly reported, tightly edited. You know, we have a very strict protocol. I'm paid by NPR. I work for NPR. I, I admire much about NPR, but we have a protocol that insulates me from both the news management and the corporate management. They, it, there's basically a black box until my reporting appears on anything that affects NPR because I don't want them anywhere near it. And they're, you know, it's written in, you know, on paper how this stuff works for us. And it's important that it work that way. And uh, I don't think that this is a moment where you kind of let people talk about where they're at with this and how they feel about it as much in terms of the specific details about NYC because it was still coming out and still surfacing. So I think they're, they've been very – working really hard to be uh, scrupulous, the journalists there, who a lot of whom I know, and they've been working very hard to be transparent. And by the same token, I think it's gotten a little – uh, blurred as to what exactly was known and what wasn't. I think it's important for them to stick to the reporting as closely as they can. Yeah, no, I agree about that. I mean, in several different ways. But I, and that sort of gets me to another set of reactions that I think a very different circle on the Venn diagram is having. And, and these are often in response to people like Leonard Lopez, Jonathan Schwartz, or Garrison Keillor, where they're saying, and, and if you look at so the comment threads, for example, on WNYC's website, you'll see a lot of comments like this saying, well, you're telling us like a little bit of the story, but not the whole story. We want to be able to make our own decisions about how we feel about these people. Um, and 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 David, I have to say that you know I, I've been a news. I was a newspaper reporter for many years, and um, it, there was a time where when somebody got terminated, usually what they would say is, "This is a personnel matter." We're not saying anything else about it. It's a personnel matter. What's been happening here, not just in public radio, but in, in all sectors, is people get terminated, and, and there's a phrase like um, allegations of, of personal misconduct or sexual misconduct or behavior unbefitting our code of behavior or, or whatever. And I mean, all of that sort of pretty much points in a, in a certain direction. And then, as is the case with Lopate and Schwartz and Keeler, in the case of the first two, there's some kind of investigation going on. Maybe there'll be more information provided. It's like once you take that step of saying, well, we're going to tell you the general reason this person is either placed on leave or, or is terminated. Uh, you know, you've sort of now you've kind of left that whole situation hanging in a way that where people feel like they have to. What are they supposed to do? Like, guess what this is about? It's really a problematic moment. Like, I don't think companies have threaded this needle very well. But I, I, I've got to say that 
it's not enough simply to say so-and-so uh, will be departing the company and, uh, you know, he wants to spend more time with his baseball card collection. You know, he, we're in a moment where people are expecting answers and you are seeing, particularly in media, where you have professionals who know how to get to a microphone and know how to use it if they need to or, you know, talk to a reporter. Uh, you're seeing an expectation of a greater degree of transparency that I think is being forced on management time and again by the people who work there. I think at NBC, there's great uh, distress. I mean, Matt Lauer was far and away the most important person in the news division uh, carrying what is, uh, you know, an engine at the Today Show and propelling that to hundreds of millions of dollars a year uh, for NBC News. And he was, you know, if to believe allegations there that that seemed quite credible, uh, you know, he was essentially uh, picking off young women one after another, in some ways kind of holding them in his office or meeting them in, in edit rooms, whether consensually or sometimes not particularly consensually, uh, to make advances and to force himself in some ways. This is just deeply problematic. And women at NBC are particularly upset because of editorial decisions they made to, for example, not produce the Access Hollywood tape on which Donald Trump, as a candidate, boasted of sexually assaulting a woman. Uh, NBC said they tried to get on the record that couldn't, but it's worth remembering and, uh, that Access Hollywood is, although an entertainment news property, part of NBC. And secondly, uh, held back and decided not to go with Ronan Farrow's uh, expose of Harvey Weinstein, which later made its way more thoroughly reported, as we're told, in the pages of The New Yorker. So a lot of women and men employees at NBC News are very upset about that. They're pushing for transparency. Simply saying Matt Lauer's out, we've, we've uh, had a parting of ways, wouldn't have held water there. And yet we don't have specificity. You know, in the case of NPR, you had people uh, leave the company, the top news executive and one of the top handful of news uh, executives both left. And these were instances that were significantly lesser than what we're talking about with Charlie Rose, with Matt Lauer, and at the same time, you know, affected the uh, working conditions for women in the newsroom to the extent that they were, were losing their hold in the newsroom. That they, you know, particularly in Mike Oreska's case, it was very clear he was going to be unable to lead. And although it had been a bunch of individual cases, no one of which might have been the death knell in some circumstances, in some employers, you know, the great totality and accretion of them said, this guy needed to go. And that's that's where we are. And there's, so we're losing certain kinds of gradations when you say it's part of the same scandal. You know, you're not everybody is Harvey Weinstein, but but you don't have to be that level of uh, a, a predator necessarily to warrant dismissal. And so we're trying to figure out, are there gradations of, of activity or are there even gradations in punishments? So far, we've seen very little of that. We've tended to see, you know, all, of, all or nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, David Volkenflik, uh, we promised you you'd uh, be able to leave at a certain time. That certain time is arriving. I'm not going to ask you another question. We feel so lucky to have you on. David Volkenflik is NPR's media correspondent, the go-to guy on a day like this. We're going to play one of those Jonathan Schwartz curated songs on the way out, uh, David, and I want to emphasize it does not uh, at all embody our feelings towards you, uh, but uh, maybe the sentiments, of, <laughs> sentiments of some listeners about some of these hosts. Get out of town, <laughs> Before it's too late, my love Get out of town, be good to me, please Why wish me harm? Why not retire to a farm And be contented to charm the birds off the tree Just disappear I care for you much too much and when you
All right. So we're back. Now it's just you and me, and I'm going to give out the phone number. What we're talking about, just so I can define the scope of our conversation, although I guess I won't be a bear about limiting it, but I like to sort of keep it in these bands if at all possible. So first of all, our number is 860-275-7266. That's not what we're discussing today, what our phone number is. That's not like the topic. Um, No, I want to talk specifically about the public radio piece of this story, because one thing that I can say with some certitude about everybody listening right now is that you all listen to public radio and you have some kind of relationship with it. And so maybe people like Leonard Lopate and Jonathan Schwartz, who are slightly more New York-y figures, there may be people you don't know so well, or even Hockenberry, you know, the takeaway was not a show that was carried on these airwaves, so you had to go find it some other way. Um, Certainly, you know the name Tom Ashbrook. He's currently on leave slash suspended, whatever you want to call it. There are investigations into his conduct at WBUR underway. underway. So you know um, that name. You know who Garrison Keillor is. He is gone from Minnesota Public Radio and presumably from from all public radio forever. Um, Tavis Smiley is probably somebody you know from a different uh, format, but his radio show, uh, which has been covered which has been carried by uh, Public Radio International, which is one of the big distribution arms of public radio, will not be carried in that way anymore. Um, who did I leave out? Did I get everybody? <laughs> I think I did. So, so there's all those stories. And I want to know... I want to know just how you're reacting to this. And once again, I'll give out the phone number, 860-275-7266. And so, I mean, I'll just sort of say... First of all, let me just say... Once again, the phone number, 860-275-7266. And I should say also, you may tweet at us. You may tweet at us. I I used to say that all the time. I never say it anymore. At WNPR Colin on the Twitters. At WNPR Colin. Um, I want to know what you're feeling. Um, And, you know, those feelings probably are grouped in the two camps that I mentioned before, but I'll summarize them in a different way. Okay, so on the one hand, I mean, I think we are all – kind of an agreement anyway, that there's a there's a problem that it has been, for the most part, underdetected and underdiscussed in this country for years and years, for decades. And now we're talking about it. And that's a good thing. And now we're taking action about it. And that's a good thing. Um, we, we may have some questions about proportionality, right? I mean, if um, I mean, I'll get to, I'll be specific. So let's say that you really like Garrison Keillor. And all you know right now, because very little is known about that story, is that it, there may not be any more than one female accuser, to the best of my knowledge anyway. Um, and the only description that we have of what he might have done has come from him. If there's been anything else, I, I'm not aware. And the way he describes it, unsurprisingly, doesn't sound that bad. <laughs> so so you might be asking some questions about proportionality. Does Garrison Keillor's work and name have to be expunged from public radio forever based on that? But I mean, somewhere within that, though, I think there's an agreement that something needed to be done. Some of these situations sound really horrible. WNYC's own reporting of what John Hockenberry was like and what he was doing is just really alarming and really shocking. And uh, if you haven't read it, go read it. Uh, but one of the questions you'll be asking is, how, like, how could that be happening for quite so long? It's a little bit of a problem in the Ashbrook story, too. Once again, relying on w, WBUR's own reporting about this, it does seem as though his his atmosphere of bullying and workplace intimidation and tirades um, uh, was an ongoing problem that had been reported to management on other occasions by other people. Um, that he made the it, it a very hard place to work and maybe a place where you 
would be very interested in knowing if you could find a job someplace else. Um, and there is some sexual component to that. But, I mean, so far what we have are some reports of back rubs and neck rubs uh, and maybe some creepy sexy talk. Uh, but that's not very specific. So uh, anyway, but anyway, that, there's like that. There's that other problem. People who are making it a very unpleasant place to work in a way that professional people should never have to go to work in, in a horrible working environment. I mean, we've all had those jobs. <laughs> we've all had those bosses, but but it shouldn't happen. Uh, it does, but it shouldn't. But then there's like you know, there's a whole group of other people, and so I'll, I'll flip myself into the uh, opposite group. So. And I'll pick Jonathan Schwartz. Okay, so Jonathan Schwartz, if you don't know him, he's this kind of fuddy-duddy American songbook curator uh, who has a weekend show on WNYC and has his own kind of digital channel now within WNYC called the Jonathan Channel. But, I mean, if you go to New York a lot and you like New York, and I'm for I'll make it as personal as I possibly can. I, for me and the woman I live with, well, that's her Indian name, um, the um, there's you know driving back from a weekend in New York, listening to Jonathan Schwartz, who has this very mannered uh, and odd way of talking as he plays these fabulous songs from the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and even some more recent songs, and and introducing you to a song that you didn't know, even if you really know a lot about jazz standards and the American Songbook. I mean, I don't know. That's like. For us, I think it's fair to say I'll get yelled at when I get home. But I, I fear th- I have like romantic memories of just driving back from New York and the two of us listening to the radio and kind of enjoying Jonathan Schwartz and even that that phenomenon of knowing pretty much geographically where the signal's going to fade. Like here's where we're going to lose Jonathan. Oh, he's cutting in and out now. And so that's a very intimate relationship. And so the other day. Um, Lopate and Schwartz were both walked out of the building. They were escorted out of the building. They're on leave or suspended or whatever you want to call it. There's an investigation going on. There's um, allegations of improper conduct. That's about all we know. And, you know, it's kind of like I, I understand why some people look at these things and go, well, you know what? If you're going to take something like that away, first of all, in fairness to the listeners, uh, you probably need to explain it more. At least they're going to want you to explain it more. I don't know whether there's a... I mean, there's another fairness question, which is if you can't really arrange some kind of tribunal where both sides kind of get to speak their piece, maybe it's not fair to air too many of these details. Anyway, as David said, you can see that we're in a strange area here. All right, our calls are starting to come in. I was just talking so you'd have time to call. 860 275 860 Two seven five seven two six six, and we have. I have to see what the name is there. Uh, we have a caller, Chris, from Avon. Hi, Chris. You're on the air. Hi, Colin. Um, and my point was, and I, you know, I get to your point about uh, you kind of develop an intimate relationship with these people you hear on the air all the time, uh, and you kind of, you want to know more. My my example would be Garrison uh, Keeler who I've been listening to since the late 1970s. Uh, but lately, uh, in the last few years, I was just getting the feeling his jokes and whatever were kind of like dirty old man jokes. And I was getting kind of sick of them and was happy to see him retire and bring in somebody fresh. Uh, and, you know, they haven't really said much. You know, there's all these employment rest- law restrictions and whatever. And he got out on front of that, 
and said, well, I just touched a woman accidentally, and and that's all we know. Uh, I think it's kind of frustrating. Uh, but I think also if people are really listening for these things, they hear them. Uh, I don't think it's totally behind closed doors that these things are happening. Right. And, you know, I mean, it's, I don't know, I'm, a, I'm in danger of tri- kicking all kinds of tripwires, but let's try it anyway. So, like, you look at a guy like Keeler, you look at a guy like Schwartz, you look at a guy like Leonard Lopez is like 78 or 79 years old. So they've lived through different eras. Uh, of sure. of the relationships between men and women. Schwartz's sensibilities, I think, are very much forged by listening to Frank Sinatra songs, which are probably not a great way to learn, you know, how to treat women as equals um, uh, or uh, or any of the other things that we would hope men would learn in, in this day and age. And and with Keeler, yeah, there's a sense, I mean, you know, he's an older guy. I'm, I'm not that young a guy myself, but I'm not as old as he is. And, and we always sort of had with Keeler this sense. He's in an odd position, right? Because he's somebody whose persona um, is specifically a bit different from probably who he really is. Now, that's true with anybody in radio. But when you're performing the way he did on A Prairie Home Companion, there's, there is by mutual consent – I would say, a staged persona unfolding. And then as he became wildly popular, and if you think back to the era when he was at his peak and he was on the cover of Time magazine, when that actually meant something, you know, and and every other thing in the world and number one on the New York Times bestseller list, there's also always a lot of questions. Could he really be like that? Is he that guy? Is he that gentle kind of woebegone kind of guy? And and then there are little things would come out. I mean, famously, his Danish wife wrote a letter to the newspaper, I think around 1999, saying, you know, we haven't lived together as man and wife for a long time. You left me for your for another woman and you're still pretending we're married. <laughs> so there'd be these little cracks. But she in that letter, I'm sorry for babbling, Chris, but I want to hear what you say. Sure. She in that letter, one of the one of her points in that letter is she goes, you know, I'm from Denmark where we don't necessarily hold people of prominence, whether they are in artistic prominence or political prominence to quite the same standards. We want to know what they can do in the sphere they're supposed to be in. And if they have sort of crappy personal ethics, that's maybe a little bit less important. Although when those ethics spill into the workplace itself and affect other people's ability to do their jobs, then they become terrifically relevant. All right, I'll stop babbling. Yeah, I'll, I'll just say uh, that I, you, I think when you start looking back in retrospect, you see a lot of talented women who uh, kind of got to a certain point, and you know this is kind of drifting over into Weinstein territory, but they kind of rose to a certain point and then they kind of disappeared. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, beyond what you know, how people are behaving with friends and you know other women that they know behind, you know, their personal life. You have to just wonder how many women have been discouraged, uh, you know, on all sorts of levels from progressing and really developing their talent and ambitions. Uh, I was just talking to a young woman last night who's just gotten into producing movies out in L.A., and I'm feeling like she probably, you know, by accident, is in L.A. at a good time. Mm-hmm. Hopefully she will not be held back the way, you know, generations of women have been held back. So, you know, I wonder how many producers, writers, whatever, that Garrison Keillor interacted with felt that they really were not 
being supported or that there was a uh, threatening environment for that. Right. We certainly know with some of the other hosts, based on the reporting that's been done, that that probably is the case uh, at WNYC with uh, some of the of Hockenberry's co-workers and, and may also be the case uh, at BUR, given some of the reporting about Ashbrook. Although, once again, I, I don't want to totally malign anybody with uh, the, the reporting on all this. This isn't as David was saying, it's not complete. We don't know complete stories yet. We know parts of stories. Um, all right. So we're going to keep uh, taking some phone calls here. We've got a lot of people uh, on the line. Uh, let's go. We'll go to Peter in Stanford. Hi, Peter. You're on the air. Uh, yes. Uh, hi, uh, Colin. Uh, with uh, I did want to bring up Weinstein. He, he sort of set the standard. Uh, I mean, the things that were coming out of the New Yorker article were just so over the top. He had the predation element, the sexual element, the career element. I don't think, uh, maybe I naive, the others that followed uh, were up to that level. Uh, it's, uh, maybe even not even, uh, if Weinstein was a 10, maybe the others were like a, a 3 or a 4 on, on the scale. I, I'm not quite sure. Uh, and, and, and the other thing is there's the public persona and the private. I mean, I'm totally floored that, uh, you know, of, of, you know these, NPR is supposed to be a, uh, a respectable organization. It is still a respectable organization. I hold it to a, a high esteem. And 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 uh, these stories are coming out of the woodwork. But I think uh, going back, to, uh, Weinstein set that standard, that bar. Right. So, and, uh, so we, I can't imagine the others came anywhere close to what the stories coming out of him were. Right. So we know. Let's say we can sort of say that Weinstein is more or less where some kind of ten is located. And I think David made a really good point, which is that then there's a proportionality question. There's proportionality based uh, on the one hat one side of the scale. The proportionality question is, where do the, the alleged or proven offenses fall uh, on that continuum? How close are they to, you know, to a Weinstein 10? How far down, how low a number could, they, could you assign to them? That's sort of one question. And the other question is, do we have a, a, um, a scale of punishments that can work proportionally? And I think, as David was saying, at the moment, not really. Either you get driven out or you don't. You know, I mean, maybe Tom Ashbrook will be the guy who does, you know, two months in an anger management class and some uh, other, you know, rehabby kinds of things and gets to come back. But nobody has so far. And and so that to me, that's sort of a, uh, an interesting question. Uh, all right. So uh, we're going to take a few more calls here. Then I'm going to go to a break. Uh, we're, and once again, as I said before, I'm as much as possible want to talk about like I was really glad Peter was talking about how he's a public radio listener. He has high expectations for us. Those expectations uh, are not being met. Uh, all right. I'm going to go to uh, Marcia in New York. Uh, hi, Marcia. You're on the air. I hope hi. I'm saying your name right. Hi. Thank you very much. You did. So my comment is that I started listening to The Takeaway when the show first started to air. And in very, very short time, I stopped listening to it because I think that any listener could tell by the way John Hockenberry spoke on the air uh, that he was dismissive and abusive, especially of women, that he talked over his co-hosts, that he made disparaging remarks about them, I mean, right on the air. So I think if you could hear it on the air, you certainly knew it must have been happening somewhere else. But, Marcia, I think that also raises the question, if you could hear it on the air in your earliest contacts with with this program, The Takeaway, I should say— How I did nobody else hear yeah, it? How yeah. did nobody else figure it out? Right. Well, I, I think that there was a whole lot of denial. You know, everybody was sailing up the river denial 
um, because because he was in some way or another um, popular or influential. But even when he used to host the Fred Friendly seminars, you could see that he was aggressive and pushy, and it didn't come out as much so much um, then. But I think it was really obvious. Um, I, I should say, just I don't know whether it's relevant or not, um, but just in the interest of full disclosure, I've been a guest on The Takeaway numerous times, sometimes with Hockenberry, sometimes with Celeste or one of the other co-hosts. Although now, well, I guess one of the things they're alleging about him is that he had he was so hierarchical with his co-hosts that he had them do the the lesser assignments, which may explain why I was hardly ever on <laughs> with him. I was well, usually on with a female co-host. Well, I, I think it's one thing for a host who feels really like he has to control the agenda to take charge of uh, heavier topics or more important guests. It's quite another thing to be really snotty and dismissive to the person who's sitting across the desk from you or who's sitting next to you um, in the in the same room. And I, I found that disturbing. Absolutely. Thanks for your call, Marcia. I'm glad you did call in. Uh, I'm going to take, uh, I think, maybe two more calls, depending on how they go, and then we'll go to a break. I'm going to start with Amy in Chaplin. Hi, Amy. You're on the air. Hi, Colin. Nice to talk to you. Um, my thought is, I, I'm, you're talking about proportionality, mm-hmm. and I feel like... If you have to take into account the whole picture of our societal change to be able to really get a full sense of proportionality. I mean, we're talking about people losing their jobs, not being uh, prosecuted and um, going to jail for, um, you know, arguably uh, behaviors that have greatly impacted um, mostly the women um, <clears throat> that they've victimized. So, um the other piece of what I wanted to say was that I'm Oops, eager for a point. Sorry. Sorry, I thought you cut away. Continue. Oh, no, no, yeah. I'm here. I'm with you. <laughs> um, the other piece of it that I wanted to just put into per- perspective about this specific piece is that as a society, we've done a terrible job in educating men and women about what is actually okay and not okay to do or to put up with. Um, <clears throat> so... Um, my, I feel like there's no bad men. It's not like good men versus bad men and which ones are the bad ones and which ones are surfaced as bad. And do we need to know their details to determine which side of that line they fall on? I think um, it's okay that some of it remains um, private and for whatever reason, whether it's um, to protect the women involved or just because we're talking about someone losing their job, not about, like I said, a, um, a trial. So, um, so ultimately, like, I feel like we have to have an end goal in mind to decide what makes sense now about any specific situation. And for me, the end goal is clarity about where this comes from, where this behavior comes from, um, what social cues are we putting out there uh, that tell men that this is um, okay. And not only that it's okay, but what actually drives them towards it. Um, and to me, that has a lot to do with the message we give boys, which is that they're superior to women and that, uh, and that um, they are part of the reason for that is that they're impervious to pain and that the only acceptable way for them to have intimacy in their lives is through sex. And that is a very twisted, uh, isolating message to be given. And the behaviors that are surfacing now um, are us beginning to see what that damage is. So again, my 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 uh, my ultimate 
aim in my own hopes for us as a society and, and me as an NPR lover is not so much that I get to know all the details of what any individual um, person in the spotlight did or didn't do, um, but to create an atmosphere where NPR can actually be part of moving us forward as a society. And, and I'd love to see uh, men in positions like yours reckon with what messages did you get and what are your confusions and what are you sorting out? Um, I think ultimately that will, that will be what moves us forward the most. I know that there's lots of feelings about what's happening and all of that deserves to be explored as well. But this should just be the very beginning of the conversation and kept in, in context that we're just starting to reckon with this. Right. I think if we're going to talk about my issues and confusions, we'll have to pre- preempt both hours of here and now. So let's start working on that internally. Um, thanks for your call, Amy. We're going to go to break, but let me just quickly say a couple of things that I think are important. First of all, I think she's bringing up a lot, a lot of stuff, and a lot, it's all important. First thing is, I don't think we're really, I don't think much of anybody's really at the point uh, in terms of power structures, whether it's public radio or anywhere else. Here's what's going on right now. First of all, um, companies are really worried about lawsuits. So if they don't deal with these things, and it appears that in many cases they haven't, uh, they're open to all kinds of litigation. Uh, also, we're in a moment in terms of public consciousness. So that's why, just to go back to what David and I were saying, it's no longer enough to say, you know, uh, Tom Ashbrook is being suspended for internal personnel reasons. That's all we're going to tell you. Um, that's the way things used to work. But I think these days companies feel not necessarily because they're Prince Charming, but because they, you know, they they know there's going to be pressure. People expect more answers than that. And they expect to hear that companies are dealing effectively with these kinds of sexual misconduct issues. But, you know, there's another question. Oh, no, I'll blow up the break if I do that. Uh, but if there's time, there's another part of this I want to explore on the other side. And it has a little bit to do with how perfect we can make the world and how perfect we can make the workplace better, a lot better than it is right now, but probably not perfect. Anyway, let's talk more on the other side of this. When an irrepressible smile such as yours warms an old implacable heart such as mine don't say no because i insist somewhere somehow someone's gonna be kissed so on god For a list of some of the jokes we could conceivably have told on today's show, send a self-addressed stamped envelope to the Dan Kosky building. Today's show was produced by Jonathan McPants and me, Kion Wolf. Amanda Fish is the new host of On Fins. The part of Bill Curry was played by Jesse Thorne. On tomorrow's show, Betsy Kaplan's Salute to Butter. And now, back to Colin. All right, so what we've, what we've been doing today, first with David Fulkenflick and then with you callers, is just kind of explore some of your reactions to what's happened here on public radio, where an awful lot of very familiar names are either suddenly suspended, slash on leave, slash fired, slash slashed, uh, over either sexual misconduct allegations or, you know, that woven somehow into a kind of toxic abusive management style in the workplace. So, um, well, I have a lot of things I want to say about this, but I did say that I would talk to callers instead. So I'll, I'll, I'll hold that for another day. Here's uh, Billy in Middletown. Hi, Billy. You're on the air. Hi. Great. I'm uh, 
I've been thinking about this a lot. And, you know, over the years, I've uh, many years I've worked with uh, people who were addicts. And um, it seems about 10, 15 years ago that um, pornography addiction became a very, very palpable problem with uh, some of the people that I was working with. And uh, it seemed that a, a part of that was um, the fantasy of controlling other people sexually. And um, it's it's very hard to deal with on a, on a clinical basis. But as I see all of this stuff going on today, I can't help but think that there is an undercurrent of... Um, uh, of uh, sexual and pornographic addiction that's manifesting itself in these people who have this kind of power today, and wham, there it is. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you for saying that. Well, I won't even react to it. I think that'll be, we'll just kind of let that stand. Um, here's Susan in Brookfield. Hi, Susan, you're on the air. Hi, Colin. Well, I don't know how to follow that one up. And Wow. Um, Please don't. But, okay, I won't. <laughs> Uh, but I just wanted to say that even though I, I, I've been in Brookfield for a number of years, raised my family here, I'm a longtime New Yorker, um, and I've been uh, and I'm a huge NPR fan. I've listened to uh, WNYC for years and your station for many, many years. But even before that, Jonathan Schwartz, uh, you know, he was an icon, WNEW. Right. Exactly. In New York. I mean, I, I, I'm, while I was on hold, I'm sitting here calculating the number of years I've been listening to him. And he was a god. And, you know, he, he was, you know, as, as a teenager, uh, someone that I really, really looked, looked up to. I was a broadcasting major and followed his career. And it just seemed to me that over the last few years, um, listening to him and even Leonard Lopate and Garrison Keillor, there, there, there seemed to be this sense of sort of staleness that started happening. And I don't know, just sort of like this, especially with Jonathan Schwartz, this sort of sense of entitlement that started creeping into his voice and sort of arrogance that I couldn't ignore. And I, eventually I stopped being able to even listen to him. And I was wondering, you know, does that, you know, that has got to just sort of be part of his persona because it's just something, I mean, I, even to the point of his mouth noises, I know it sounds so stupid, but I couldn't, I, I wanted to scream at the, at the radio, back up off the microphone, just back up, Jonathan. You know, it just, it just became really intolerable for me to listen to, and I just, I just sort of was thinking, when are they going to, like, they, there, there has to be a natural end to this, and unfortunately, this was the natural end to it, but, um, you know, I guess I just wonder why, you know, at certain points, you know, if you're, if you're allowed to do whatever you do and just do it and do it and do it, even though eventually the quality, quality of it starts to flounder, and I'm sure he started, I cannot be alone. I know I'm not alone in this. No, no. You know I, mean? I, 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 first of all, I, I mean, I, I, some of what you said is I haven't ever heard anybody say quite that way. But I, you're absolutely not alone. I mean, the idea of people finding Jonathan Schwartz insufferable is probably, 
You know, there's a word. Yeah, I mean, and that's not been the case like forever, right? I mean, it may be more yeah. so as he ages and, and, and takes on some of these characteristics you're describing. Yeah. But the notion that he's insufferable or that he's smug or that he's like, you know, he's appointed himself the final arbiter over 40 or 50 years of American popular music. Exactly. Um, that, that's been around for a while. You can still, like I've still managed to enjoy him and the music he's introduced me to. But no, I totally get what you're saying, Susan. We're going to have to stop here. I can't take another call because I'll, I'll blow the clock. Let me just say a couple of things here. I mean, in, in the, the stories about Hockenberry and Ashbrook have been troubling to me as a host because of that whole idea of bullying and intimidation. I, I really do feel like people, people need to have a place that they can go to work every day. And a, first of all, A, not feel like Matt Lauer is going to be chasing them around a table. You know, I mean, that's bedrock, you know. Uh, but also feel like it's a place where they're not going to be attacked verbally or put down or I mean, you're like, you're never going to not have bosses who yell and scream and think that's the best way to get stuff, get the best performance out of you. And for some bosses, that might even be true. That is like the best way they know how to get performance out of you. But it's not the best way to get performance out of people like I, I depend on having producers who can be really creative and who are really creative because, first of all, I'm not that smart. I need these producers to make me look good. So uh, so I don't want them stifled in any particular way. But I sort of believe if you create an atmosphere of trust, you know, where people trust each other and they trust the room they're sitting in and they're sitting in a meeting and they're, they're, they're never scared to bring up an idea – of course, on my show, you kind of get rewarded for bringing up really horrible ideas at the meeting. So we're a little weird that way. But you know what I'm saying? That, you know, it, the other problem with all this stuff is you're not going to do your best work if you're terrified that somebody's going to chase you around a table when you're alone in the room after hours or that you're going to be shouted down or abused. And I'm like, I don't know why people don't get that, why people think that. You know, if they yell and scream, the people around them are going to do better work because they're going to be afraid. People who are afraid never do their best work. That's why John Thompson's basketball teams used to throw the ball out of bounds or call timeouts they didn't have because they were afraid all the time. So, I don't know, I just hated reading about that. I hate the idea of people going into work feeling afraid, although that is inevitably part of working. All right, so we've been playing Jonathan Schwartz songs. Here's a happy one. This is Margaret Whiting. <laughs> 